Turn in your Bibles, if you would please, to the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. Matthew 16 and verse 13. This is what the Word of God says. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Father in heaven, we come before you Uh, with very full hearts today, with so much joy and so much gratitude for what you are doing in our lives, and particularly in the life of our church family. Lord, you've been good to us from day one, from the moment our church began meeting in a conference room in an office building in the early 90s, to when they moved into schools, to when it moved into its first building, to when it first went multi-site and said, let's have more than one location, to the launch of our Independence Campus, and now to our third location of the Fort Thomas campus over eight years. You have been good. Even as, the, as Samuel said, till now you have helped us. Lord, you didn't start helping us now with this building. This building serves as an Ebenezer, a reminder to us that you have been good to us, that you have helped us all along the way. And so we thank you, not just for this building, but especially for this building, not just for what you're doing in our church family now, but for what you've done all along the way. You are good. We thank you that we can even be a church, that you could call us out of darkness into your marvelous light, that you could give us a relationship with you, that you would not have wrath come toward us, but that you would set your love upon us. We are so grateful for your grace, your mercy, your kindness, and your love. And now, Lord, we boldly ask you, without apology and without, uh, with no shame, we boldly ask you, give us grace to help us in this our time of need. Help us understand your word. Help us rightly divide the word of truth and apply it to our lives at this important juncture in the life of our church family. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we read in Matthew chapter 16, there's not much of a scene set here, right? It just kind of jumps right in. It just says, now, uh, verse 13, now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. So there's not much of a scene set here, but if you read a parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, you would see that Jesus had spent time praying to his heavenly Father, withdrawing from the crowds, but going to have a very intimate time of fellowship and communion and peace and solitude with just him and his heavenly Father. And when he had finished praying, he comes back down and joins his disciples and starts this conversation with them and says something very important. Uh, Matthew 16 and verse 13. Asked his disciples, 
who do people say that the Son of Man is? And so in verse 14, they answer. Well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But then in verse 15, it gets personal. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? It's pretty easy to talk about what other people are saying. Now, let's, who do you, yes, you, you decide, you, who do you say that I am? Now, get the picture and get the picture by looking at the text. Look again at verse 13. It says, he, Jesus, asked his disciples, right? Verse 14, who responds? It says, and they said, so that makes sense, right? He asks a group, a group responds. Now, look at verse 15. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And the group is silent, at least by and large, right? The first portion, he asked the group, who do others say that I am? And they're like, oh, yeah, that's easy. We can tell you what others say that I am, right? Because it's easy to talk about other people. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. How crazy is that? John the Baptist. Like, have you noticed Jesus has a head? It's obviously not John the Baptist. Hello. Like, it's easy to talk about that with other people. Look at this guy. And this guy's saying Elijah. This guy's saying one of the prophets. Like, that's crazy, right? I know. People say the funniest things. Hey, who do you say that I am? And they're like, oh. Don't make eye contact with the teacher. And there's silence. But then breaking the silence, Simon Peter answers the question. But Jesus isn't just making conversation with the disciples. He, they might think he is, but he's actually asking them the most important question they'll ever face in their entire life. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's a question that literally every single person will answer at some point in time. Whether they answer it in this life or answer it in the next, every person, make no mistake, will be faced with the question of who they say Jesus is. Every person, every religion, every Christian, every philosopher, every atheist, every Catholic, every Jew, every Muslim, every Hindu, every Buddhist, every conservative, every liberal, no matter how different people are now, one thing remains the same. That question is coming. Who do you say that Jesus is. At some point, everyone has to reckon with that question. It is in very real sense an ultimate question. It's literally a life or death question. Everything hangs in the balance as to how you answer that one question, who you believe Jesus to be. For those who answer that they believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Christ, that they believe that he was sent into the world so that the world through him might be saved, like we read in the Gospel of John, chapter 3 and verse 17. People who believe that literally on the cross that he paid for their sins, those people will be saved. For people who understand that they owe God a debt because the Bible says the wages of sin is death and that since you're a sinner, you owe God death. That's what you owe him. And for people who believe that Jesus paid that debt for them, and therefore the debt is paid in full, people will be saved. It all hangs in the balance of that one question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Anything short of that will not do. Who do you say that Jesus is? I think Jesus was one of the greatest teachers that ever lived. Not a false statement. Won't get you heaven. Who do you say that that Jesus is? I think Jesus loved the poor and the marginalized more than anyone else who's ever trod this earth. Not a wrong statement. Won't get you heaven. I think Jesus performed miracles and signs and wonders. I think he, 
healed the sick. I think he raised the dead. I think he was an amazing man. You can even say, I think he was an amazing man of God. Great. Not enough to get you heaven. But if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah who was sent to save sinners like you and like me, if you believe that when he died on the cross that God the Father was completely satisfied in the payment he made on your behalf, you will be saved. That's what Romans 10 and verse 9 says, right? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's an ultimate question. And I'm not just saying it was an ultimate question back then, right? It's an ultimate question right now. You'll notice I'm not saying, so to understand what it was like in Jesus' day, it would be like me asking you this question. No, there's no parallel. It's the same ultimate question that is ultimately true, and no question is more important for you or for me. Who do you say that Jesus is? So look again at verse 15. He said to them, who do you say that I am? And only Peter answers, and he does so decisively. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Picture for a moment, if you will, if I was asking you a question, throwing it out to the group, right? And said, you don't raise your hand, just shout it out. And one person answers, another person answers, someone else answers, someone else answers. Like, okay, let me ask you a different question. Then all of a sudden, silence. Nobody answers. The question I asked was a little awkward. People are hoping I will ask another question. They're trying not to make eye contact. And then all of a sudden, out of the corner, I believe that someone answers. And it kind of startles you. Oh, wow, he went there. That's what it would be like here. Jesus says to the crowd, to the disciples, who do you say that I am? Everyone's like, ah, next question. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Wow, he went there. And he did. What's Jesus' response? Verse 17, he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or Simon, son of Jonah, or son of John. And here's why you're blessed. Because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. So look what Jesus is doing. He's making sure that Simon Peter knows you're blessed because what you just said, you didn't just say on your own. You didn't come to this knowledge and all of a sudden you believe this. Here's why you're blessed, Simon Peter, because what you just said could not have been said if God had not revealed it to you. And so he's saying, make sure you realize you're blessed. But what else is he saying? Because other people can hear him. He's saying, Peter said this because God revealed it to him. Implied in that is, why didn't anybody else say it? Maybe God isn't working in their hearts and minds yet the same way they're working in Peter's hearts and minds. And so it's a powerful, powerful moment. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And verse 18 says this, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, flip over to Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Now, this verse uh, is interpreted by people differently if they're part of the Catholic religion. 
The Catholic religion teaches that Jesus was saying Peter himself, based on this verse, was the rock upon which the church would be built. And that's where they get their idea of the papacy and papal succession. And so Peter was therefore looked upon as the first pope, if you will, the father of the church. And upon him would be uh, the building of the church throughout all ages over and over and over again. But that's not what the text says, and that's also not consistent with what we see in the rest of the New Testament. If you look at Ephesians 2 uh, and verse 19, it says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Here we go, verse 20. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the what? The cornerstone. Right? So Jesus himself is the cornerstone. Now you'll notice Paul is not discounting the role that other people play. Verse 20 says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. But make no mistake, the cornerstone, the rock, the big guy, the big kahuna is none other than Jesus Christ. He is the foundation of the church. And so when Jesus is looking at Simon Peter and says, you are Peter. And upon this rock, wink, Uh, The word for Peter is very close to the word for rock. You are Peter. And upon this rock, he's not saying upon you. He's saying upon what you just said. Based on what you just said that was revealed to you by heaven and not through flesh and blood. Based on that, the fact that you believe that I'm the son of God, guess what? That's the foundation of the church. Upon that rock is what the church will be built upon. Peter is asked the ultimate question by Jesus himself. Who do you say that I am? And Peter's answer is not only correct, but indicative of the fact that his heart and mind had been changed by God. Now, here's what I'd like to do for the rest of our time together. Uh, We're going to spend the rest of our time on the promise Jesus makes to Peter. And I think reflects well what we could celebrate any Sunday, but especially today at our grand opening here in Fort Thomas. If you look back at Matthew 16 and verse 18, we're literally going to spend our time unpacking five words. Five words. Uh, Verse 18 says this, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, here's the five words. You ready? I will build my church. I will build my church. Today we're here to celebrate the Lord's Day, but it's obviously a very special one for us because it's our grand opening in a place we can call home. I'm excited. You're excited. Everyone's excited. I'm so glad to be here, and I'm glad you're here with us too. But we're here to celebrate this important milestone in the life of our church. And as we do that, I think it's important that we remember some key points that we can get from what Jesus said in those five words. I will build my church. Now, pronunciation is important. The way people say something is sometimes often as important, maybe even more important than what they say. And so the way you say something can sometimes alter the way it's understood. Right? So if I look at Sarah and I'm like, I love you, I love you, right? That's different than me saying, I love you. But it's the same three words, right? I've just said it very differently. And so it's interpreted very differently. How about this? Let's say we say, let's eat, Grandma. Let's eat, Grandma. Right? Same three words, yet one has you picturing grandma coming in on a spit, which is really weird. And it's all because commas save lives. It's all because of how I said those three words. 
And so what I want to do is I actually want to take these five words, I will build my church, and I would like to accentuate a different word every time and see what God might show us. Let me see if I can demonstrate for you. And Jesus said, I will build my church. 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 And so from five words, I would like to give you five points, five things to consider as we look at each one of those words and what it reveals to us about our Lord and about our church. So let's get going. Point number one, I will build my church. That's what Jesus says. Listen, our church staff works unbelievably hard. Uh, we labor in ways you likely know and assume, but probably in ways you, you know nothing about. There are untold amounts of work that go into preparing a worship service each and every week. And as soon as one is done, there's another one just a week away. Like, you might have time for a victory lap, but you won't have time for two. You've got to start thinking ahead. What's the next service going to be like? What songs will we sing? What will we choose to focus on? What will the sermon be about? Where are we going? Where have we been? Where does God want us to go as far as our church family is concerned? There's another sermon to write. There's countless number of details to ensure our children are both taken care of and taught the word of God. There's tons of things to think through. How do we equip counselors to serve people? How do we come up with new community group leaders? How do we equip our growing church to grow small even as God grows us large? The amount of work that has gone into the project here to get this building ready is unbelievable. I mean, untold hours spent in meetings going over details and design and planning, incalculable amounts of detail to prepare for our church family to inhabit this space and especially to prepare for this special day. Because the construction crew does the vast majority of it, but then there's fine, like someone had to bring this up here. Someone has to tune the instruments. Someone has to get the details in place. Someone has to decide whether it's too hot or too cold and what it'll be like. Someone has to prepare the children's classrooms to look amazing, which they do, by the way put the artwork on the wall. Someone has to put together those huge, there's these huge cabinets in the children's class. Someone has to spend the hours it takes to put those things together and still believe there's a God at the end. They're horrible. All those details are done by different volunteers and members of our staff. We have an unbelievable team. But here's the thing. Psalm 127 and verse 1 says this, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. I mean, we could build a building. Satanists could build a building. When Jesus said to Peter, I will build my church, that's a promise that it'll happen and a reminder by whom it will truly happen, right? Because if God's not in it, we're not going to win anything. If God's not the one doing a great work in people's lives, calling people to himself, revealing the gospel to them just like he did for Peter something flesh and blood couldn't reveal for itself, 
If God isn't doing that now, we don't grow. We just have a building. That's why Paul says in Romans 15, verses 17 and following, in Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Let me read that to you again slowly. In Christ Jesus, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and by deed. God brings about the growth. Jesus says, I will build my church. Uh, Turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter three. Take a look at verse five. Paul says this. What then is Apollos? Right? Like what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but who? Say it again, but God gave the growth. So he concludes this, verse 7. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. This is such an important point. He chooses to make it in a different way. Watch. So look at this. He says, verse 6, I, this is Paul, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. He says that in verse 6. Then in verse 7 he says, neither he who plants, that's Paul, nor he who waters, that's Apollos, is anything but only God gives the growth. It's like, okay, see a previous line. It's like, yeah, but you don't understand. Look at verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one. It's like, oh, gosh, this is like a Boolean logic proof. Okay, so he who plants is nothing, right? He who waters is nothing. Now you're telling me he who plants and he who waters are one. All right, so he who plants is zero. He who waters is zero. They together are one, which equals, I got you, zero. Okay, so it's zero plus zero times one is zero, It's like, we get it. It's not about us. It's all about him. It's God who brings about the growth. But it's such an important thing for us to realize because we're finite human beings and we're like, well, yeah, behind every great project is a great leader. And and that stuff is not untrue. But God's like, hey, make no mistake that you realize that at the end of the day, the work that is being done in people's lives, I'm doing that. That's not because they're such a, a certain type of personality or because they're so good at studying or because they're so good at understanding the word of God. I'm doing this in their lives. And throughout the scripture, God gets the glory for all the growth all the time. That's why he says to Peter, I will build my church. And so what about you? How are you different today than you were in days gone by. Maybe you look back in your life and you could say, well, I'm, not, I'm not sinless by any stretch. But honestly, I do sin less. I still sin, but it's not as much as I used to. God's really grown me. I used to really struggle with having this perspective on people, but God's really given me a love for people I never thought I would love before. I've, I really used to struggle in thinking through things in this way. I really used to struggle with outbursts of wrath, and all of a sudden I'm finding myself, at least with the wherewithal, to try to be patient with people. I don't do the things that I used to do. And that's not because you just, it's because of your stick God brings about growth. Jesus says, I will build my church. 
Uh, Point number two, Jesus says, I will build my church. And so one thing we didn't have until recently in this facility, it's just a small thing, it's called doors. Zero. So we had tons of doorways, but no doors, right? They were delayed. They didn't get here in time. Of course, it's because of COVID, right? It's all because of COVID. It's cold today because of COVID. It's all all because of COVID. So somehow, somehow the coronavirus affected the doors and the delivery. But you understand, there's like, we decide the doors we want, then we tell somebody, then someone else to somebody else, and somebody else orders it, and somebody else puts in the orders, and they've got to do the cutting and the door making mill work, woodwork, carpentry. I don't know. They've got to do something with saws and factories and stuff like that and make the doors. And then they've got to wrap the doors and then they've got to ship the doors. And the doors have to be shipped from the door world to our facility here. And then we've got to check the doors and inspect the doors and make sure they're the right doors. And then we've got to hang the doors. Lots of people along that. It's not just like we just, we just ordered doors. Jesus says, I will build my church. Jesus is dependent, listen, on nobody. He's not like, I'll build my church, but my gosh, I mean, we got to get people and I've got to change their hearts to not love them and to start loving me and they have to see their need for me. I got so much to do. I don't know if I can do all this. I mean, I can die for them, but are they going to actually believe? What am I going to, I don't know. What am I going to, how do I convince? Oh, oh my me. Get it instead of, oh, my God, because he's God. Sorry, it's just the way I think. He's dependent on no one. I will build my church. Do you ever notice the certainty with which the word of God is written? Jesus doesn't hope to build his church or try to build his church. He doesn't wish upon a star that the church will be built. He doesn't look down from heaven and say, I hope this works. He doesn't look down the line at a bunch of people and hope things fall into place. If only it'll work out. Oh, the word of God speaks to us with, with a certainty like nothing else. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims the works of his hands. It's not like the heavens, you know what? If it's a nice day and you look at just the right angle and the sun is at the, just the right position and if you're in the right mood and if you're looking at the right time and asking the right questions, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. No. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. It's certainty. It's not uh, hope. And so when Jesus says, I will build my church, he's not like it might happen. It's not hyperbole. He's like, hey. I will build my church. Did you ever read the book of 1 John? If you haven't, you should. It's a book that's literally written with believers like you and like me in mind so that we might know with certainty where we stand with the Lord. It's five chapters. You could read it in one sitting. You could read it a chapter a week over and over again, dive into it. You could read the whole book every day. It's not hard. Certainty, 1 John 5, verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him. Verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. Is certainty within the word of God something that you notice? You should keep your eyes peeled for it. 
as you're reading the Word of God, notice there's not ambiguity. This might happen. You can find hope and help during uncertain times by being reminded of the one thing that remains constant and true throughout all generations and with all peoples, God's holy word. And so when Jesus says, I will build my church, he means it. He does what he says. He says what he means all the time, every time. Point number three, I will build my church. Like so many things in life, God is most glorified in us over time. I've said it before. I've said it again. It, it just frustrates the daylights out of me that God could speak the entire world into existence in six literal days and yet works on me over the longest periods of time. It's like, God, if you see that I have a rough edge in my life and I have plenty, can you just kind of sand that bad boy out like tonight while I sleep? Or today, can we just do it all today? Like just get it done. Can you not just do this and it'll just be done? I'll glorify you, I reason with him. I'll glorify you sooner. I'll better reflect you sooner. Just get it done. And God's like, I could totally do that. I mean, I'm not, but yes, I could do that. And why does he not do that? Because God is glorified in us, not just by, boom, getting things done, but by doing a building, a project, a process over time, a slow and steady and sometimes even painful process to build us into the people he wants us to be. We read in Ephesians 4, verses 11 and following, that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So one of the ways Christ builds, not just causes to appear, but builds the church, is through leaders who equip people for ministry. You're like, but you're in ministry. You're like a rev in front of your name. I don't even know what that means. Revised? Revert? Whatever. There's a rev in front. You're in ministry. Yeah, but the Bible says that it's my job to equip the saints, that's you, to do the work of the ministry. In a kind of a weird way, when I entered the ministry, I left it. Because now I'm supposed to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Do you know why? Because you're better at reaching people than I am. Oh, Peter, you didn't say that. You don't mean that. Just your first, it's a grand opening, you're all emotional. No, I could legit prove it. You're better at reaching people than I can. You will reach more people more effectively than I will. You spend more time in the world than I do. You have circles that you can reach that I cannot. I might wear a microphone and stand on a platform. It's an hour a week. You go to work. You go to school. You stay at home. You work from home and have to balance the the many things of what it means to be a full-time worker while also a full-time parent or whatever you do. You have those things that you do. You have places where you can shine for Christ that I can't get into. Ever. I would also go as far as to say that when you shine for Christ, it might even mean more. Because people think it's my job. He has to shine. What with him being a pastor and all. Whereas you're a stockbroker who looks at life differently and interacts with people differently. Why? You don't have a bias to protect. There must be something different about him. You work in a factory and you do your job all day long. But there's something different about you and there's a way that you're not panicking about the times that we're in and you're, you have hope. You're concerned, but you have hope. What's up with that? 
That's why we equip you to do the work of the ministry. It's not because we're lazy. It's because that's what the Bible says to do. And Jesus says, I will build my church, and that church is built through you. That's why we do things like personal ministry training, because I'm, we are convinced our church is built through you. God builds his church over time through people, by us equipping people to do the work of the ministry. Building our church through people like you, serving in ministry together. Ephesians 4, verses 15 and following. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus said, I will build my church. Jesus said, I will build my church. And he does that through people like you. But then Jesus also says, you know, he says, I will build whose church? Whose church is it? He says, I will build my church. One of my biggest pet peeves are church signs with the name of the pastor on them. Like I'm super, if you follow me on any social media, you know that I've been posting pictures of our signs like, I don't know, once an hour uh, because I'm super excited about the signage and how it came out. I try to find different appropriate songs to put to those signs. Ace of base, I saw the sign. You're welcome. Signs, signs, everywhere signs, right? Signs of life, Pink Floyd. Anyway, I, I, I could go on. But one of my favorite things about our signs is not only how they work, but what they say and what they don't say. It's a sign for Grace Fellowship Church. You don't see Peter LaRufa's name on it. You don't see Brad Bigney's name on it. Why? It's not my church. It's not his church. Jesus said, he didn't say, I will build Peter's church. He didn't say, I will build Brad's church. He said, I will build what? Say it. My church. And you know why he said that? It's not just because he's, he's not egotistical. Because he bought it. You own what you buy. Acts 20 and verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves, Paul says. He's speaking to pastors. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. See, Jesus didn't pave the way for salvation. He was like, hey, here's a way. Here's a way where there was no way. I've made a way for you to have a relationship with God. I mean, that's true, but he did more than that. He didn't just pave the way. He literally paid the way. He paid the way. My debt has been paid in full. If you're a Christian, your debt has been paid in full. And Jesus paid dearly and bought us with his blood. He didn't just make a way for us to be saved. He literally bought our salvation. It's paid in full. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, verse 20, for you were bought with a price. 2 Peter 2 and verse 1. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. When Jesus says, I will build my church, you could take that to the bank. It's his. He owns it. Every bit of it. He bought us, and our salvation has been paid in full. 
And then finally, that last word. We've been through four words. Let's go to the fifth one. He says, I will build my church. I will build my church. Not I will build a movement. Not I will build an organization. Not I will build a company. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that's not what he's talking about. He says, I will build my church. And the word church is a translation of the Greek word ekklesia, which means assembly or called out ones. It does not mean building. Romans 6, verses, uh, verse 5 says this, Greet also the church in their house. Excuse me, Romans 16 and verse 5. Greet also the church in their house. Like, oh, what a cool house that it had a church building inside. No, the church in their house was a gathered group of people who would be the church in their house. Ephesians 1, And he put all things under his feet, Christ, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Look at me, please. We didn't just finish building a church. This is not the grand opening of our church. We didn't just move into a church. The church just moved into a building. You understand that? We didn't just move into a church. The church just moved into a building. Now, for the past eight years, our campus hasn't had a place to call our own, ever. To varying degrees, we've been a portable church. We've always had something to set up or to tear down. We used to walk our supplies for holding a church service through projector rooms at the AMC movie theaters at Newport on the levee, trying our best not to knock into cameras and trying to resist pushing buttons. Even this past year when we took over what was the event center, we didn't have as much to set up or tear down, but, there was, but just sitting in there, we were reminded that this is not for us, right? This room was clearly not reminded for That's what we were reminded. Like, you sit in the event center, it's fine. It served us well for five years. But it's a constant reminder, like, this is not, this room was not designed with us in mind, right? Like, we wouldn't have picked those chandeliers, and we wouldn't have, this is not with us this is not with us in mind. This, this is ours. We're just, we're using the space, but this is not our home. We had to trek across a parking lot to get our kids. That we put a sign that said Grace Fellowship over the offices because we couldn't put a sign that said Grace Fellowship over the room that we had our worship service in because it wasn't our space. And so all the time when people would visit, they would come in to that room and they'd say, hi, we're here for church. And we would say, it's actually across the parking lot over there. And they'd look at us like, thanks for putting this sign here. That's awesome. It's been wonky. It's weird the way it all worked out. But that's just, this is the place that God has had us for the past five years. But one of the greatest blessings of this entire season of our church family's life, eight years, is the constant reminder that our church isn't a room or a building, right? Constantly as we sit in that room, we're like, this is clearly not a church. This is straight up a movie theater. How do you know? Well, I just passed the sign that said Evil Dead 105 rated R. I know this isn't our church. Constantly reminded. I realize that we're the church meeting inside a room. And for the longest time, we've wondered, like, how this day would come about or if this day would ever come about, where we would have a facility that's custom built with you in mind. With you in mind. With our church in mind. How we roll. How we sing. What would be just perfect for the way that we conduct our worship services as a church 
family. The lighting, the decor, the furniture, the, the feature walls, what's accented, what's not, how we roll, all of that was taken into consideration. We have a facility that's absolutely exceptional. You should walk around it after our service is done and check it out. And there's still more coming. Not all the features are in. And we don't have to set up anymore. We don't have to tear down anymore. And I don't want to ever do that again. But here's the thing. I'm actually like low-key concerned about the fact that we don't have to set up anymore. And we don't have to tear down anymore. You see, even in all that we're celebrating today, we run the risk of seeing this place as finally having reached our goal of having our own space. Right? We've been setting up and tearing down, but what's the Lord going to provide for us next? Oh, we're going to move out of the movie theater into the event center. Okay. We've been setting up and tearing down, but what's the Lord going to provide for us next? I don't know. We keep setting up and tearing down. Oh, but we don't have to set up and tear down anymore. It's now our space. Okay. Are we going to be able to get that? We've always had this what's next attitude. What's next? And now that we don't have anything to go what's next to as far as a facility is concerned, I'm concerned that we would view this as a finish line. Listen to me. I don't talk about the devil much. Feel like it's not my job. I believe the devil would want nothing more than for you and me to view this as a finish line. He'd love for you to have run this far with us, pacing yourself to make it to the finish line, sweaty, tired, aching, dying to finish. And just as you're in the home stretch and you see the line coming up and you're like, oh, we're almost there. We can make it. I'm going to make it. I'm not going to die. It's okay. And then as you get up, you see letters at that line and you see the word start. And you're like, what the heck? I've been running. I've been sweating. I've been pacing myself. You're like, oh, heck no. I'm out. We've worked hard to make this a reality, and now it is. And we have a church building, and I'm switching gears. I've done my pioneering. I went to church in a movie theater. I went to church in an event center. I sat in the most uncomfortable chairs nose to men. I trekked across a parking lot just to pick up my kids from children's ministry, trusting that the Lord would perfect them while they were in a different building from me. I was willing to do all that, but now that I don't have to, I'm going into a different mode. I'm coming to our comfy church in our comfy chairs. Then I'm getting in my comfy car, and I'm going back to my comfy home. And Satan would be like, awesome. Sweet. Just what I want. Get the church comfy and cozy so it forgets what it's like to pioneer for the sake of Christ. So they don't really feel the need to invite people anymore. Why? Because they got those big old signs. People know they're there. We had zero signs at the movie theater. You had to invite people. Nobody would know that you were there. We had one tiny little small sign in the list of like all the random stores that are in this plaza. You had to invite people. People don't know that we're here. Now we have these big... Do you really have to invite people? The devil would love to make you think. You don't really have to. People will drive by and see it. You still pray, but not as hard because we have what we've wanted. You still give, just not as sacrificially because we have what we were hoping for. And Satan would be like, that's... Just what I would want the Fort Thomas campus to be. He's terrified that you would view this as what it really is. A starting line. A starting line for you to be 
a sure and steady light during dark and uncertain days. A starting line for you to reach others with the life-changing message of the gospel. And sure, you have a greater place to invite them to that's more comfortable, but still, you are still on mission. A starting line is an opportunity for you to think, what's it going to be like for me uh, to shine as a light for Christ, to serve him and his church? How can I be ready for whatever the Lord has in store for me? With another shameless plug for personal ministry training. What does the Lord have in store for me? I don't know. I think I'll kind of wait and see and get ready then. Or you can get ready now. The devil would love for you to think of this as a finish line. Ah, good. The race is over. Good. We can start cleaning up kind of, you know, like after the, after the flying pig, after the marathon, the crews come out and they start picking up all the crumpled up cups and napkins and all this other stuff and makes the city look like what it was before. The race is over, but the race is not over. But the devil would love for you to think that the race is over, but it is not. A starting line for you to say, what would it be like for me to be as a, a, a light for Christ in these dark days, to serve him and his church? And then how do I make these things into a reality so I can look back on grand opening day and say, that was the starting line for me, not the finish line? Think about it. We're in a great spot as a church campus. I'm like 90... Solid 95% excited, 5% concerned. Supermajority excited, granted. But I don't want us to view this as a finish line. Please turn to 1 Corinthians 3 again. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 5, we read this before. What, is, what then is Apollos, right? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos' water, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, that equals zero, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. I want to encourage you, before you leave today, to check the place out, to sit in the new chairs, to walk around, to take a look at the unbelievable amounts of detail that went into thinking through our children's ministry classrooms. And then we still have a phase two that's going on in the event center. Construction starts tomorrow to build out for a space for our youth ministry and for offices as well. I want you to check out this unbelievably exquisite, beautiful, custom-built building that we have been blessed with by God for you and for me. Please do that before you leave. But look at me. It's bricks and sticks. Look at verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. Can you read this with me? God's 
building. This is just bricks and sticks. We'll take care of it starting now. <laughs> we'll be thankful to the Lord for it and for all the people who work tirelessly to make this a reality. But never will we think that our race has already been won because we've moved into a building. God hasn't given us a finish line. He's given us a beautiful, custom-built starting line. And I hope you're ready to keep running this race with me as long as God lends us breath for his glory and for the good of his people. Father in heaven, we are delighted, delighted in what you've given us and what you've done for our church family. And so we are grateful. We are thankful. We're grateful to have, been, to have cut our teeth as a church family on rooms and facilities that were constant reminders that the church is not a room. Definitely not those rooms. And Lord, we're grateful now that you've given us a room. You've given us a facility. You've given us a place that we can call home. Would you be so kind as to continue to remind us that this is our long-term home, but this world is still not our home. That this is our long-term temporary home. That we are still citizens of the kingdom of heaven, sojourning here as long as you would have us. And all we long to do is to please you with the time that you've given us, with the breath that you lend us. Show us, Lord. Show us what it means to be the body of Christ, working and striving to please you and to reach others for your glory, for your sake, for our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you all